0: consciousness, your being, as the night sky, and your thoughts or your awareness as a light shining out into the darkness. Ayahuasca allows you to expand the circumference of that beam and intensify its glow. You can also think of reality, all of human experience, as that night sky, and your consciousness or your being as the light shining out. Ayahuasca then is a tool that can help you to fuse your light with that of the stars. It is at once a reconnection with and a deepening of the self. In case that sounds vague and unscientific to you, I'll just point out that this subjective experience can be measured neurologically to some degree, and many clinical studies seem to show that it's precisely through this process of profound integration that psychedelics can provide an experience of deep healing and growth, a sort of transformative anti-trauma that allows you to integrate both neurologically and psychologically the parts of you that were once feared, exiled, or shattered within. Welcome, my name is Eric, and this podcast is basically my best effort to connect with other people committed to making life as good as it can be. We're here to explore a pretty wide range of perspectives and and practices, as well as the people behind them, normally via in-depth conversation, long-form interview. Uh, Today, however, first episode, I'm joined by no one, just me and you. I've been working with Ayahuasca for, for quite a while now. And last week I had an experience that inspired me to, to write. I've been writing and revising pretty much non-stop since then. And the text forms the basis of, of this episode. Today, I want to talk about psychedelic medicine, and specifically ayahuasca, as a tool for what I call existential hormesis. We'll get into the details of what that means a bit later on. But before we get going, let me say, if you want to get in touch with me directly about the experiences we offer at the Retreat Center here in Spain this podcast, or anything else, uh, email me at eric, with a c, at primalnature.eu. So, let's begin. I'll just assume that you're here now because you're asking yourself whether you're ready for ayahuasca, how to get the most out of your experience, or whether it's right for you at this time in your life. Maybe you're new to psychedelics, or just new to ayahuasca, or maybe you've done it a number of times and you're just not sure why your experiences haven't lived up to the grand expectations that you went in with. Whatever your experience, I suspect that underneath your questions about ayahuasca lie a few others. Some version of, why isn't my life as good as it should be? Or what's wrong with me for feeling this way, and and what can I do about it? Now, these aren't bad questions per se, but they do tend to lead us down unnecessarily tortuous paths. We could spend our entire lifetimes formulating various answers of increasing intricacy, in therapy for example. But those answers, no matter how brilliant, are unlikely to help us make meaningful changes to our lives. The truth, I think, is much simpler and in some ways much more difficult to accept than any answer to these hypothetical questions. So maybe take a step back if you haven't already and ask yourself why you're interested in ayahuasca in the first place, or more precisely, for what purpose are you attracted to it? Formulate your intentions as clearly as possible. It's clear by now that most, if not all, major religions developed in close connection to the psychedelic experience. Rather than choosing one to believe in as a sort of thought experiment, I often recommend that people imagine they will be taking a trip to the Oracle at Delphi a few thousand years ago. So close your eyes for a minute and see if you can see yourself in a tunic in sandals, a peasant in Grecian fields of wheat. Your life is stripped of all your present quotidian worries. No car, no phone, no frenetic impulse to make something of yourself just the stark reality of sun and heat in your work. You work, as Khalil Gibran told us, that you may keep pace with the earth and the soul of the earth, your life following the slow progress of the seasons. Bear with me here. A fundamental part of the psychedelic experience is to get out of your own routines of habit and thought and feeling. So don't start putting up barriers like cynicism and skepticism just yet. See yourself as a humble peasant and imagine that this is your one opportunity to peek beyond the veil of your daily existence and glimpse the secrets of whatever lies beyond. Some deeper truth waiting for you to discover it. In order to visit oracle, however, you must purify yourself. Cleanse your inner life of all dishonesty, all internal deceit. So you have to write a letter. Write a letter in which you expose yourself to the oracle completely. First, what do you fear about this experience? Dig deep, below the surface of daily details. Allow yourself to feel these fears completely as you write them out. And second, what do you desire? What is it you are seeking? Write freely, without worrying about syntax or grammar. No one else will ever read this. Just let the feelings flow. And when you're done, maybe another sitting go back through what you've written and notice where you've held back where you've glossed things over notice how even here in a fictitious letter to an ancient oracle you hold on to various forms of resistance notice how difficult it is to be fully transparent and honest even with yourself and now push a bit deeper notice the fears that lie underneath the fears you've expressed and the desires underneath the desires Embellish your writing, flush it out, until it feels full and complete. If the oracle, which is a metaphor for your own conscience, deems that you've bared your soul sufficiently, you will be permitted one question. Humbly, with care and reverence, allow yourself to imagine, what would that question be? Terence McKenna once said that our lives are a mystery suspended between two eternities. It is wise to think of psychedelics as tools to explore the brief mystery we are granted here on earth. Most people come to ayahuasca looking to get rid of what they consider to be negative situations, emotions, habits, or thought patterns, hoping to suddenly embrace some new, better, brighter reality, which is certainly understandable. Most of Western thought, and the entire discipline of psychiatry, which is ostensibly our culture's best effort at preserving our our inner well-being, is about doing precisely that. Suppressing symptoms and covering over difficulties with fancy pharmaceutical band-aids. It's easy to assume that an encounter with ayahuasca would be no different. So, maybe you're desperate. Maybe you're just vaguely curious. Maybe you've been accumulating various accolades, reaching goals and checking boxes like house, career, spouse, what have you, and you find that somehow it's not enough. You're looking for something more, and you've heard that ayahuasca just might be it. This, I think, is probably a mistake. Not that ayahuasca can't be an integral part of improving your life profoundly. It definitely can. But the only way out is through. I'll repeat that. The only way out is through. Dante knew this in the 1300s. Many others discovered it too, both before and after. You can't avoid your emotions or any aspect of yourself if you want to be free. In fact, it's just the opposite. You have to experience even your most difficult emotions fully. Embrace the darkest, strangest, most troublesome parts of yourself without resistance. That's the only way they'll ever release their hold on you. And if you approach ayahuasca specifically in order to do this, the effects can be astounding. The word psychedelic is a compound from Greek, meaning mind manifesting. This is what they're best at doing. Carl Jung said it beautifully. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness visible. If we try to skip this process, hoping to use ayahuasca or meditation or visualization or any practice as a form of spiritual bypass, it tends to end miserably. So, consider for a moment that there is no such thing as a negative emotion or a bad feeling. Only realms of experience that are more or less difficult for you to accept. Consider that the specific part of your reality that you have a hard time with is likely rooted in time when you are young and vulnerable and wounded in some way, either dramatic or subtle, conscious or not, maybe in an instant or maybe over many years. But this experience not only shaped the way that you understand yourself, what you might call your identity, but also underneath that, on a compulsive, instinctive, animalistic level, the realms of sensation and feeling you are attracted to and those you flee from as though your life depended on it. If you find yourself sometimes overwhelmed with anger, anxiety, depression, a sense of meaninglessness, whatever it is, think of that as your mind and body's defense system gone a bit haywire, protecting you obsessively and preemptively against the realms of feeling you refuse to acknowledge or accept. This is called trauma, and we all have it, to one degree or another. Now, trauma, as you probably know, isn't necessarily flagrant, abuse, or neglect. It isn't even the event that happened so much as the schism that our reaction to the event created within us. The inability to connect with our innermost selves and be present for the entire spectrum of our experience. Now, just by living in society, no matter what our childhood was like, we are pressured to widen that internal schism constantly in our daily lives. It's a matter of shutting up, sitting down, fitting in, getting in line, saying please and thank you, Just being a functional member of society seems to require that we don't listen to our inner instinct much of the time. So, to some degree, it's unavoidable. But that matter of degree is absolutely critical. When we take it too far, when we systematically refuse to feel certain ways or recognize that we do, because it doesn't fit in with our self-image, or it's too painful, or whatever the reason, we inevitably create patterns of compulsive behavior to avoid those feelings and indulge in others, which is why we get addicted to work, to alcohol, to victimhood, to emotionally shallow relationships, whatever our preferred medicine may be. And it is precisely those patterns that keep us from living with the richness and profundity that we know we need. If all of this is true, and I'm convinced it is, then it is only by connecting with our most difficult emotions and the most difficult parts of both our past experiences and our current selves to which they correspond, that we can be whole. And wholeness or integrity, a complete uninterrupted connection between thought and feeling, instinct and analysis, body, heart, and mind, that is the best model in neurological, psychological, and experiential terms that we have to describe the conditions necessary to live a full, meaningful life. So if you want vitality, resilience, inner peace, and profound freedom. Full-scale mind-body integration is the best way we know to get there. Ayahuasca, of course, can do much to help us along the way. But the process isn't automatic, and the changes aren't permanent, unless you do the work to make them so. So, circling back, if you find yourself asking whether you're ready for ayahuasca, ask yourself whether you're interested in delving more deeply into the hidden parts of your mind, your heart, your soul, Do you want to heal your wounds, process your fears, and rework your compulsive patterns of thought, feeling, being? Are you willing to cherish even the most difficult aspects of your existence? If your answer is yes, then mine is too. You're ready to begin. Ayahuasca, I think, is best viewed as a tool to help you radically deepen and accelerate the personal work that you already know needs doing. Now, I'm not a shaman and I'm not a psychiatrist some portion of you won't be interested in what I have to say. That's fine. I've studied and worked in a number of different modalities, and what I've seen has convinced me that my true credentials, the only ones that ever really matter, are the personal experience I have, born out of my calling to explore, to heal, to grow, and to transform. Don't get me wrong. The titles of shaman or doctor or what have you can be proxies for experience. And experience can be a proxy for competence or even mastery which can be born out of deep compassion, which is all that really matters here. But unfortunately, what these various titles seem to signify more often than not is participation in a subtle or sometimes blatant dynamic of mystification, a well-greased bullshit machine in which we, the public, place a so-called expert in either a feather headdress or a lab coat in some kind of high pulpit above us mere mortals to minister as magic cures with incantations of either vague spirituality or scientific technicalities. Take your pick. It's useless to cast the blame elsewhere. We do this to ourselves. This is a controversial position to take, I realize that, and I want to be careful not to overstate the case. There are many accomplished healers who call themselves shaman or curandero or doctor, but there are also many who bear these titles who are not. I simply want to point out that by valuing the title as if if it, and not the individual experience, competence, and compassion of the person who bears it, were what mattered, what we end up doing to ourselves without realizing it is creating a category of expert with esoteric knowledge above and beyond what we can hope to achieve in our lifetimes. Which may be fine if we're talking about aeronautics or heart surgery. I'm all for the specialization of human competence. But in the realm we're concerned with here, something like the art of living, experts don't exist. Anyone who might be considered an expert in this realm is a human, like you and me, gain their expertise through a long process of introspection and internal work, with or without formal titles attached to their name. No one granted them their expertise through magic or even abstract knowledge, nor can they grant us expertise through similar means. The most we can hope for here is an experienced and caring soul to show us a bit more of our path than we can currently see for ourselves. This distinction may seem trivial, but I think it's absolutely fundamental. Because when we realize that there's no person or method or medicine to whom we can entrust all our personal agency, we must accept that the responsibility for our own well-being always, inevitably, falls back on ourselves. This may feel overwhelming from where you stand, but I think it is an unviolable truth, and in time it will become both extremely comforting and deeply liberating. In my view, when ayahuasca or any other psychedelic is effective, it is only by bringing us deeper into ourselves by offering us the possibility of profound integration in body, heart, and mind. And this is key. For any of that to take place, you need to prepare properly beforehand. And for any of it to last, you need to be dedicated to integration afterward. Wherever you go, whatever you do, look long and hard at the forms of support during both preparation and integration that you may want or need. Now, things can get a little bit tricky here. Getting help doesn't mean getting a high priest of the jungle or the hospital. Or at least it doesn't have to. For some people that may be appropriate. But the goal should be just that. Finding the appropriate level of support that you need. Without losing sight of the fact that you are ultimately in charge of your own growth and healing. And no one can do your work for you. Again, ayahuasca is a tool, one of many, that can bring you into a deeper connection with yourself. You can think of your consciousness, your being, as the night sky in your thoughts or your awareness as a light shining out into the darkness. Ayahuasca allows you to expand the circumference of that beam and intensify its glow. You can also think of reality, all of human experience, as that night sky, in your consciousness or your being as the light shining out. Ayahuasca then is a tool that can help you diffuse your light with that of the stars. It is at once a reconnection with and a deepening of the self. In case that sounds vague and unscientific to you, I'll just point out that this subjective experience can be measured neurologically to some degree, and many clinical studies seem to show that it's precisely through this process of profound integration that psychedelics can provide an experience of deep healing and growth, a sort of transformative anti-trauma that allows you to integrate both neurologically and psychologically the parts of you that were once feared, exiled, or shattered within. Jan Groff once called psychedelics non-specific amplifiers of subconscious processes, meaning that they bring out whatever you have inside, front and center. He also said that they will do for understanding of the human mind what the microscope did for biology and the telescope for astronomy. I don't think this is an overstatement, but there is a crucial difference. Psychedelics allow us not only to examine, but to experience, and not some distant reality, but the most personal and intimate reality there is the one we hold guarded deep inside. Which means that you are the only real expert in your experience. A guide of some sort may be extremely useful to help you make sense of the material you uncover, but this is crucial. A guide will only ever be helpful to the degree that they can show you the tools that you need to understand or heal or expand yourself. So my advice is that you stop seeking for the person or practice or program that will somehow suddenly make everything okay. Look instead, if you look at all, for something that can help facilitate the discovery of that knowledge within yourself. Consider that the so-called higher truth to which ayahuasca can connect you may not actually be a higher truth, but a deeper one, not to be found in the spirits of the jungle or fMRI printouts but simply, directly, inside of you. Your body, your emotions, your reality, your truth. The result of connecting to this truth is inner peace. And from that peace, profound freedom can flourish. I personally spent many years looking for these things in many places, from the Amazon to the Alaskan bush. And it seems clear to me now that the only place it can ever be found is inside. Which simply means that the external circumstances, whatever they may be, whether the therapist's couch or the shaman's hut, are best viewed as a possible means, a provisional strategy for achieving the internal goal, which only you can ever find for yourself. But the thing is, it's already there inside of you, waiting for you to recognize it. It doesn't have to be built or sculpted or magically manifested. You only have to learn how to listen, how to tap in. Let go of your spinning monkey mind and delve deep inside into what you already know and feel to be true. If you can do that profoundly, even once, then you have the possibility of maintaining that connection. And with ever greater tenacity, piece by piece, transform the way you live your life. I'll give you a personal example. So a few years ago, I went to an ayahuasca retreat that, unbeknownst to me, was run by some kind of international corporation. I had no idea that kind of thing even existed. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. It was... A sort of chance occurrence that that got me there. Anyway, uh, it was an incredibly strange dynamic. There was no sense of caring, compassion. I mean, the the shaman or whatever you want to call him, he was basically just checking Facebook the entire night. There was this sort of weird, threatening sense about most of the people there. I mean, I I found myself incredibly happy that there were no young women there, just because. These guys seemed like they would be more than happy to take advantage of them. It was it was disturbing on on many levels but but the experience itself was amazing astoundingly beautiful somehow, in spite of all that or or maybe even because of it i just I found myself in the right place at the right time so to to explain this um, Think of something like emotional synesthesia, right? If you've if you've never had a psychedelic experience, I think that's the best way to describe it. So synesthesia is you know a sort of a mixture of sensations where people can maybe hear colors or see music or, or things like that. Yeah, but but with with ayahuasca or with, with psychedelics in general, that takes on a, a cognitive and, and emotional significance, right? So the visions you see have an emotional weight. And you feel them deep inside in this sort of visceral way. You know, I mean, it's, it's really not too distant from a dream. It's just a much more detailed and prolonged dream and one that you can actually learn to, to guide to some degree. So anyway, wh- what I saw was this intense vision of a panther, a dark black panther, muscular, supple, just pure energy. And I've I've had a relationship to panthers ever since I was a little kid. I mean, I watched The Jungle Book a million times, and I used to wake up like three, four in the morning, walk around the house by myself, just kind of exploring the darkness, and, and somehow I, I identified with the panther. And this this vision came to me of this this panther moving, stalking, seeking something. I didn't know what, and I just knew this this panther is me, right? This is This is my search. This is my journey. And so I was moving to the jungle, the forest, grasslands, desert, just searching, searching, searching. I didn't know what for. And suddenly out over the ocean I saw this light. It was small. It was minuscule, but it was incredibly bright. And I just knew that's it. And I just started running, jumping, like, through the waves, just, you know, impossible impossible stuff, right? But um, I just started running, jumping, Somehow just all out going for this this light. I don't even know. Uh, it was, yeah, it was magical, obviously. Um, and and after what felt like a, a very long time, I, I finally got there. And I saw this incredibly bright white flame. And it was flickering, this blue-green with this intense glow. Right, Everything else was darkness. I was dark. it just completely consumed me right I I fused with that light with that energy and I I knew right then in that instant I was like this is what I need this is it this is how I have to live my life in, in close intimate contact with this this vital force right I can't let it be outside of me it has to be inside and so with, with me wherever I go I have that sensation that feeling right it's, it's like a, a sort of an emotional compass or I don't know a north star uh, it's, it's a way in which I can guide myself so anytime I have a difficult decision some kind of I mean not not something trivial but, but a profound decision go back to that internal compass and I just feel. It's like if I do whatever, X, will it bring me closer to that light? Will it bring me closer to that feeling, to that sensation, to that energy? If yes, it's right. You know, no matter how crazy it seems on the outside, that's the way to go. And conversely, obviously if it's gonna take me further away from that light, it's gonna somehow weaken the light or or distance me from it in in any way and i just i know it's wrong it's it's not the right move so that's basically why i'm here now that's why i work with ayahuasca you know not, i don't work exclusively with ayahuasca i work with different cacti and, and fungi different plant medicines because of their power to bring us into connection with that level of truth, that level of certainty that sort of purity and and clarity and I I work with the plants also because they're natural which means that they are often unpredictable, some would even call them capricious which means that you know, in the the same way as with with life in in general I think the, the nature of your experience is highly influenced by your relationship to it and most importantly, your relationship to yourself. Right, so your mental and emotional state shape to an incredibly large degree the contours of your journey, and that's what makes these plants such perfect tools for personal exploration. It's it's like an ideal training ground for the vicissitudes of life itself. Now, in case it wasn't clear already, ayahuasca does not produce instant enlightenment. Right, otherwise every person who ever took it would be a saint, and they clearly are not. It has complex effects that one day might be understood in scientific and medical terms, but we're far from that understanding today. What a very nascent neuroscience tells us is that it shuts down the default mode network, or the DMN, what in subjective terms might be called your identity or your ego, thus the term ego death. Now, the DMN is a network of neural connections that seems to regulate to a large degree your sense of self and your place in the world. And the experience of having this shut down can be anywhere from pure terror... incredible, heart-rending love. The end of the spectrum you find yourself on will be influenced in large part by the thoroughness of your preparation. But you can also learn to direct your experience even while you're in it, something like a lucid dream, and it doesn't actually take much training. Anyway, it looks fairly clear from initial results that by drastically reducing DMN activity, other neural connections are suddenly allowed to proliferate, thus the cascade of images, sensations, memories, insights. Not only that, but ayahuasca seems particularly good at promoting targeted neurogenesis and opening serotonin pathways to create, what Dennis Mechanicals, a hyperconnected neural architecture that endures over time, to provide a lasting antidote to many forms of addiction, depression, and other conditions rooted in excessive identification with our egoic patterns and the existential scars that entrench them. So, on the one hand, ayahuasca is about as automatic and predictable as aspirin. Your DMN will be shut down, with essentially the same certainty that aspirin will alleviate your sensation of pain. But what this allows for in the case of ayahuasca is highly individual and impossible to predict. With the DMN offline, the inner workings of the deepest aspects of your mind are suddenly revealed, and that is where the magic is. That is where the trauma can be healed, where the self can be integrated, where you can encounter the higher power, which is the deeper power within you. No matter how far the science goes, no matter how many compounds are isolated and mechanisms of action are identified, the mystery of our subjective experience will, I think, always remain. And no matter how much people may mystify the process with talk of higher beings or alternate planes of existence, your experience, no matter how ethereal, will always be rooted in your personal, individual experience of reality. Now, as a side note here, I think it's worth pointing out that the dichotomy between the psychological and spiritual perspectives tends to disappear when you look at it closely, how could you ever know God or the divine or any higher power but through this body, this mind, this reality? Even when we think we are looking out and beyond, we are always also, or maybe only, looking at a reflection of what lies within. Conversely, how could you ever explore yourself deeply without coming up against the limits of your understanding? And we can call what lies beyond those limits, God or the divine, or any other term you want, But as soon as you place it on the outside, you lose all agency and possibility of growth. You fall inevitably into confused mysticism or fruitless searching. I believe the evidence, both scientific and experiential, suggests that what we encounter in psychedelic journeys is not outside of ourselves at all, but deeper within. The primordial self, our own primal nature. Seen in this way, the dichotomy between the holy and the human dissolves into nothing. What's needed to get the most out of this experience, whatever angle you're coming from, is a way to get out of your analytical mind and your clinging self-image, to let go of your defenses, surrender your ego, and encounter your whole self as deeply as possible. Now, I've spent a long time developing a set of methods and tools to facilitate this process. I call it existential hormesis. Hormesis being the controlled exposition to acute stressors in a way conducive to growth. Typically, this is done with a focus on physiology, using stressors like heat, cold, fasting, breath work, physical exertion, or even radioactive particles to increase resilience and cure disease. Intermittent living, Wim Hof, amazing stuff. But all of these physiological effects can also have profound neurological and physiological correlates if done correctly. Through targeted talk therapy, guided meditation, Tumo, Tantra, and other insight practices, we can transform what might have been a simple ice bath, for example into a tool that revolutionizes our relationship with ourselves and the world around us. Thus, existential hormesis. Psychedelics are by far the most effective and powerful tools in this toolkit. They can provoke physical effects, sometimes quite profound, but the primary focus is mental, emotional, existential. We're working at the limits of experience to explore and potentially transform the nature of our existence. By taking ourselves to acute neurological extremes in in a controlled fashion through psychedelic therapy, we can break free of our entrenched patterns and essentially reset our entire mind-body system to establish a much more robust and resilient center, a truer and more vital self, more deeply connected, at greater peace. This is what I call our primal nature. After more than 10 years studying various modalities of analytical talking therapy, I finally realized it's not enough. We need to dig deeper than mere understanding to affect real change. Our patterns of thought and feeling and behavior, our self as we know it, exists in a context much deeper than the prefrontal cortex. It's nestled in the limbic brain and brainstem, emotions and sensations, influenced by our lived experience, as well as our genetic and epigenetic inheritance maybe even by the non-neuronal intelligence native to the cells of our bodies. The science here is young. There's much we don't know. I've heard these revelations called the Copernican revolution, discovering that our conscious minds are not the center of identities or ourselves, just as we discovered that the Earth was not the center of the universe a few hundred years ago. And in the same way Copernicus allowed us to better understand the rising and setting of the sun, or the passage of the seasons, this insight gives us a better context in which to, to understand the reality we've all experienced that changing ourselves and our patterns by conscious willpower alone is incredibly difficult, if not impossible. The major difference between Copernicus and now, of course, is that this misunderstanding of the rational, analytical mind as being the dominant or even sole component of ourselves is relatively new. Descartes' famous cogito ergo sum would be as good a place as I need to call a starting point for this belief. And this perspective has served us well to invent, create and generally bend the world to fit our liking, it does have its uses, but we're reaching a point when the shortcomings of this strategy seem all too clear. And ever since we've existed, humans have known that our individual ego or free will or spirit, whatever you want to call it, operates in a complex web of relationships, not only internally, but with other humans and with the natural world as well. All forms of traditional spirituality, and medicine for that matter, are based upon this observation over the past few hundred years in our enthusiasm to examine the world with scientific scrutiny, we have, I think, rightly discredited much superstition and erroneous thinking in this regard. But in the process, we're in danger of losing the basic essence of truth. As the saying goes, the mind is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. So we come to the simple truth that in the same way that explaining the dangers of addiction to an OxyContin enthusiast is unlikely to produce any effect, So too is simply understanding our thoughts or feelings or behaviors unlikely to do much more than frustrate us at our own stupidity and weakness for continuing to do what we know we shouldn't. Knowing and understanding simply aren't enough. This problem is as old as psychology itself. Freud called this the repetition compulsion, and it puzzled him endlessly. It's puzzled investigators and practitioners ever since. We could talk about the brain as a self-perpetuating prediction system that observes only what it expects to see, trauma and the Sisyphean effort to heal old wounds, or the playing out of autobiographical narratives that become self-fulfilling prophecies, or even the karmic need to repeat cycles of experience until cosmic lessons have been learned. But the simplest way to think about it, and probably the most practical when it comes to living a better life, is this. Until we stop living life as a way to escape the most difficult aspects of ourselves rather than connect with them more deeply, our essential patterns of suffering will remain unchanged. And that is why we guide people through a few weeks or sometimes a few months of targeted preparation, using therapy, breathwork, meditation, nutrition, whatever's needed to set the stage, and we invite people out of their habitual setting into nature in or around my home. I find this balances the playing field, eliminates hierarchies, and forces full transparency on my part. I am not a guru, and I don't want to be. With a small team, we carefully craft a personalized context in which a small group, a couple, or an individual can connect deeply with their inner nature, their own personal truth, in a safe experience, guided gently, firmly, and with love. In the integration process, which is at least as important as any other aspect of the experience. We are focused on interpreting and understanding whatever insights have been revealed and developing simple, practical tools to help translate those insights into real, lasting change. If you're interested in learning more, get in touch with me via email at eric with a C at primalnature.eu and we can set up a call. I want to close here with one of my favorite quotes from Khalil Gibran. You have been told that life is darkness. And in your weariness, you echo what was said by the weary. And I say that life is indeed darkness, save when there is desire. And all desire is blind, save when there is knowledge. And all knowledge is vain, save when there is work. And all work is empty, save when there is love. And when you work with love, you bind yourself to yourself and to one another and to God. So this, I think, is our task. To take our desire to grow, to explore, to live life fully and inform it with the knowledge necessary in order to do so. To take that knowledge and apply it moment by moment in the work of daily life. And as we work on ourselves or in the world with others, to do so with the openness and presence that is called love. Work is love made visible, Gibran says, and our fundamental task here is to make it so.